The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Let's turn this morning in our Bibles to John chapter 9 as we continue in our study of the book of John. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went on a mission trip from Texas to New Mexico with the youth group in my church. And par for the course on youth groups, one of the vans broke down. Uh, It actually ran out of gas uh, because one of the fuel gauges wasn't working correctly. And uh, I wasn't in the van that broke down, but I was in the other van. But we pulled over as well so that the group could uh, stay together. And when our youth leaders figured out what was wrong, the van that worked was sent to get some more gas because... Well, we had passed a gas station just a few miles back. So myself and another student were asked to go on the working van with one of the leaders to head back, get some gas in return. So we did that. But when we got to the gas station, the youth leader had to dig through the trash cans at the gas station to find a container for the gas. And he found a discarded antifreeze jug that didn't have a cap on it, but it would work because all we needed was enough gas to get that van back to this gas station. So we filled up the container, and as we were getting back onto our van, the youth leader handed me the container of gas, and he said, hang on to this carefully while I drive because it has no cap. So I was riding in the front passenger seat, and to give you a visual of this, I found a a picture on the interwebs of a van that is similar to what we were riding in. Now, I know that for some of you, the shag carpet is going to bring back memories. Uh, (laughs) But that's a picture of the driver's side. And you see that little cutout that's right there at the bottom that sort of makes a step to go up into the van? Well, that's also the case on the passenger side as as well, which is where I was sitting. And uh, I thought that step would be a great place for that container of gas that had no cap. So I got into the passenger seat and I sat down and I put that container right on that step and it fit perfectly. So then I reached over to close the door and as I'm pulling the door closed, I think to myself, oh, I need to look down and make sure that there's enough room there for when the door closes. Now remember, I'm 14 years old and I'm a boy. And if you've ever had one of those or been one of those, you know exactly what I did. I looked down. And as the door was closing, I had one of those moments in life that you have where in a split second you think, I'm not sure if this was a good idea. And as the door closed, it compressed the container and the liquid exploded upwards into my face as I'm looking down at it with my eyes wide open. I was blind for four hours. It's a type of chemical burn when you get that much gasoline in your eyes. 
And once we got me washed off, I could only see white. I couldn't see any shapes or detail or color, just bright white light. And so I had to keep my eyes closed. And by God's grace, my sight returned. But in those four hours, I was scared to death because I thought I had lost something very valuable, something precious, the gift of sight. And we don't realize it's a gift until we lose it, right? In our passage today, Jesus will give the gift of sight, not restore it, but give it for the first time to a man suffering from blindness. And it's a miracle. And today I'm just going to sort of be introducing the first part of this story because we'll be in chapter 9 for the next two Sundays. But we'll see today that Jesus gives the man the gift of sight. And over the next two Sundays, we'll see that he gives him so much more than that. Hence my title, The Gift of Sight and So Much More. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. We are going to be again in John chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Word of God says this, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors of those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. May God bless the reading of his word today. You can be seated. So our passage today breaks down into two major sections, and I put those for you on your outline. Number one is the powerful miracle, and we'll spend most of our time this morning there. But then the second is the people's response to the miracle. By the way, if you're new with us, at all of our entrances is not only the informational piece about McGregor that I mentioned before, but we also have a printed outline of the message, if you'd like that. And I know for those of you watching online, we make that available there as well. So number one on your outline is the powerful miracle, and that's really what the first couple of verses are all about. Now, there are seven signpost miracles in the book of John, and we've already seen five of those miracles to this point, and now this one would be number six. We call them signpost miracles because the miracle isn't the most important part. But like a signpost, the miracles point to what matters, and that's Jesus. And two of the five signpost miracles that we've already looked at have been Jesus healing people. We've seen Jesus heal the official son in John chapter 4, and we saw him heal the invalid man by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. So as we jump into John 9, 
I think it's important for us to remember that as we look at all the physical healings in the entire Bible, they do occur, but they are rare. Over the years, I've heard the question, why doesn't God miraculously heal people today like he did back then? And I think the answer to that question is twofold. Number one, he does heal people today. And number two, there's probably not as many healing miracles in the Bible as you think. They certainly do happen both then and now. But if we factor in the 6,000 years of recorded human history that we have in the Bible, physical healings are not a regular occurrence. They're just not. Now at this point, we are in a section of the Bible that is the exception to that pattern, and that's the ministry of Jesus while he was on this earth, recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's clear in the gospel accounts that there's a spike in miraculous physical healings during Jesus' three-year ministry. So if you put all four gospel accounts together, you've got to conclude that Jesus healed plenty of people during his time on the earth. He healed the sick, healed the lame, the paralyzed, the mute, the deaf, the demon-possessed, and the blind, just to name a few of them. He even raised three people from the dead. So what does all that tell us? Well, again, these miracles really happened, but they happened in order to point to the deity of Christ. They're pointed to the one who is performing the miracles, that he is God himself. So the first thing that we see in this particular miracle is the man's condition. Letter A on your outline is the man's condition. Look at verse one in your Bible. In verse one it says, and he, that's Jesus, and he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. What we have in verse one is the first and only record of Jesus healing blindness that someone was born with. Today we'd call that a congenital condition. But imagine, friends, imagine never having seen anything at all, ever. Living in a visual world, but with no frame of reference for what that's like. If there ever was a scenario where folks would conclude that it's not possible to heal that, it would be someone born blind. And as a result, this man was a beggar. You probably noticed that at the end of our text today. Because in that time, begging was the only way he could survive. His daily existence depended upon the generosity of people who came to the temple. And as they came to the temple to give alms, they would also give him something to show compassion because of his disability. Now, we don't know exactly where this interaction took place, but we do know that all those arguments that the Jewish leaders tried to have with Jesus that we've been looking at for the past eight weeks, <laughs> those all took place in the temple complex. So he was probably begging near the temple because when those confrontations ended, as Pastor Kerry pointed out last week, Jesus slipped away from the temple right before they were about to stone him for blasphemy. So Jesus and his disciples walk away from that near-death experience and they come across this blind guy. And that's when we notice the disciples' conundrum. Letter B on your outline would be the disciples' conundrum. In verse two, the disciples ask a question and it reveals their conundrum. 
So they see this blind man and they end up using him as a talking point for a theological conversation. Did you notice that? How easy it is for those who are following Christ to talk about the man, but not to the man. He's not a person to them, he's just an interesting scenario. More like an object lesson that they wanna use to get Jesus' take on. Having a son with a disability, I've experienced this a few times in my life in a more benign way, where for example, someone will come up to me and my son will be standing beside me and they will ask me what my son's name is. See, we do that sort of thing all the time without even realizing it, just like the disciples did. Friends, we live in a fallen world where people continually are objectified and commodified, but as God's people, we are to be different than that. We of all people understand that abled people and disabled people both bear the image of God. And everyone we come in contact with deserves respect and dignity afforded to them. As an image bearer, they have value. In this moment, the disciples had evidently forgotten that Psalm 139 makes it real clear that every single person was knit together in their mother's womb. And every single person is fearfully and wonderfully made by their creator God. So we do not affirm nor participate in eliminating people by murder, abortion, or assisted suicide. Because those people bear the image of God. They're his creation. And to take a life like that is to mock what God has created. During World War II, the justification that the Nazis used to dispose of the sick and the disabled and the elderly was that they were life unworthy of life. That was the phrase. That was the official motto of Nazi Germany. And that evil justification has not gone away. It's alive and well today in the United States. The disciples are asking their question here because they grew up in a religious system that made it clear that sickness was a penalty for sin. And that wrong kind of thinking also has not gone away today. They held the belief that physical suffering always was the result of sin that had been committed by the person suffering. So for the disciples, this blind guy was a puzzle because he was born blind. If you've grown up believing that personal sin is always the cause of physical suffering, then how can a person be born with a disability? That doesn't make any sense. Their thinking was that somebody's sin had to have caused the suffering of this blind man. That's what they'd been taught. Now, I want to be clear. Suffering is always connected to the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. Pain, suffering, trials, difficulty, and death all came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, as a consequence of their rebellion against God. And we have inherited their depravity and we have inherited those consequences. 
It's all connected back to Genesis 3. But at the same time, the suffering of an individual, one that an individual experiences, is not always caused by their own sin. It's important to make that distinction. So the disciples' inconsiderate question here in verse two makes it clear that they thought only two answers were possible to this conundrum. Look in verse two. What's the first possibility that they ask about? The blind guy, right? His sin. That's option number one. Maybe that was the explanation of why he was suffering. He was born blind, so his sin had to be in the womb? Prenatal sin? Think about how out of whack that is. But that's what some rabbis taught in Jesus' day. Because again, the thinking was that personal suffering always had to be tied to personal sin of the one who is suffering. What's the second option that they mention in verse 2? His parents sinned, that's right. Okay, so mom and dad did something in their life and as retribution for their sin, God strikes this infant blind in the womb. That's their other option. And that's also out of whack. But notice that both of these options are all about man-centered causes. And before we get too judgy about the disciples, their mentality has not gone away. It's in every world religion, friends. But it's also in us. I mean, just listen to the conversation that comes out of our own mouths. Lots of us who claim the name of Christ have allowed the materialistic mindset of the culture to influence us and shape our thinking. And that mindset always leaves God out. We, along with the disciples, have a tendency to look for man-centered causes. Let me give you an example of that. When you or I hear about a friend or a family member that's gotten COVID, what questions come to our mind? Well, what caused it? Well, where do they think they got it from? Were they vaccinated? Now, I'm not trying to be political, but my point is that our minds immediately try to figure out the man-centered causes when we see suffering. We want to know who's to blame, but we rarely consider that God might have a purpose in suffering. This was the disciples' conundrum, and it's ours today. That's why they asked the question of Jesus, and boy, oh boy, did he give them an answer. That is the Lord's certainty. Letter C on your outline would be the Lord's certainty. Beginning here in verse three, Jesus gave the disciples a definitive answer to the question that they asked. Now, just as a heads up, I'm only gonna deal with verse three of Jesus' answer this morning due to time, but I will have more to say about verses four and five in our Beyond the Notes podcast this week. That's just a heads up. So, back to verse three. What's Jesus' answer to the question of who caused this blind man's sin? Look at what he says in verse three. Look at your Bibles. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Just let that sink in, okay? With certainty... Jesus rejects 
both of the options the disciples were asking him about. And instead, he says, stay in verse three, that the man was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. What's Jesus saying here? He's affirming a sovereign purpose in human suffering. He was not declaring that the blind man was sinless, nor that his parents were sinless. The Bible tells us in a very familiar verse that some of you know, in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that included everybody here in John 9, except Jesus. He's simply saying that this man's blindness was not caused by any specific personal sin from the man or his parents. Jesus says that it happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's affirming a sovereign purpose in human suffering. And for the Christian, that kind of certainty gives us peace and comforts our hearts to know that God has a sovereign purpose in suffering. And that suffering happens so that the work of God might be displayed in us. Wow. The Apostle Paul had much to say about suffering in his letters in the New Testament. But the first couple of chapters of 2 Corinthians are particularly dense on the topic of suffering. And in 2 Corinthians 4, he describes the reality of all those who are in Christ Jesus living in a fallen world when he says this, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Suffering is doing something on our behalf. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, I don't understand at all that that means, but at the very least, it means that God doesn't waste the pain his children experience. He uses pain and suffering as we go through it to bring about eternal gain for us. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Friends, God loves his children so much that he is determined to take every trial and every difficulty that we face and do his work in us so that it might be displayed and glorify his name. Suffering makes us aware that every aspect of our lives, including deep pain, including physical disability, including death, all of those are un-God's sovereign care. They're not a crisis. They're not an anomaly. It's not a defect. It's not a genetic fluke. God does what he does, and he allows what he allows for his purposes so that his work might be displayed in his children. Our Lord has a certainty about this. Even if you and I might struggle sometimes with our certainty about this, Jesus is certain. After Jesus gives an answer, he then gives his command. Letter D on your outline is the Lord's command. But what does Jesus do first before he gives the command? Well, look at verse six in your Bibles. It says, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes 
with mud. Does that sound strange to you? It's a miracle with mud. That's a bit odd. That was almost my sermon title this week, The Miracle with Mud. (laughs) There's a reason that mud is used here, but we'll look at that next Sunday. But still, it seems odd. But actually, there are four different accounts of Jesus healing blind people in all of the Gospels combined. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus healed two blind men simply by touching their eyes. In another instance, in Mark 8, Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes and then puts his hands on him. What a nice thing. In another case, Matthew 12 just says, and he healed him. But it doesn't tell us how he heals the blind man. And here in John 9, Jesus uses mud, saliva, and the water that the guy washes off with. So none of these healings of blind people are done in the same way. There's no uniform method that Jesus uses here. And why is that? Because the method is not the point. God sometimes uses indirect means to heal people. And sometimes he doesn't use indirect means to heal people. He just heals them directly. And sometimes he doesn't heal at all. Here's the point, friends. God heals how and who he wants to. He does all things according to the counsel of his own will for his purposes. And there are many times in life where we don't understand the ways of God, where we don't understand how he's working. And that's precisely the point of faith. That's when we must trust him the most. But brothers and sisters, let's not forget, he's a trustworthy God, amen? Psalm 145 tells us that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. God is good even when it's hard. He's the creator and we're the creature and we have no right to judge God about how he does what he does. It does us no good to put him on trial when we go through a season of suffering. We say it often around here. God does all things for his glory and our good as he defines our good. In this situation, Jesus healed the man. But as we know from the other gospel accounts, there were always many disabled people around the temple begging. Jesus healed a few of them, but not most of them. In verse seven, he does heal. And he gives a command to this particular man to do two things. Look at verse seven in your Bible. What does he command him to do? Go and what? Wash, right? And what did the man do? Stay in verse seven, look in your Bible. He went and what? Don't miss that either. God is definitely at work in this man's life, using his suffering and his circumstances to draw him to salvation, which we'll see later happen in the passage next week. But here, he's at least obedient to the command of Jesus in this moment. Now, his obedience is also not why he's healed. 
Don't give into that falsehood either. The sinful mentality of works righteousness says that, well, if I'm obedient, I should be able to live a pain-free and suffering-free life, shouldn't I? No. That's the modern-day prosperity gospel, which is a lie. So be careful of that trap as well. The cure to his blindness was not the mud. It was not the saliva. It was not the water. It wasn't even his own obedience. Friends, the cure to this man's blindness was Jesus. It's that plain and simple. Did you notice what the name meant of the pool that Jesus instructed him to go to? Siloam, and what did it mean? Sent, yeah. John gives us an editorial note right there in verse seven, so we don't miss that. Because the one who has been sent by the Father, Jesus, he now sends a blind man to walk to the southeast corner of the city wall of Jerusalem. Now I know funny, and that's funny. Jesus sent a blind man to find that pool. Some of you, it'll strike you on the way home from church today how funny that is. And when the man came back, made his way to Jesus, he came back seeing. Hallelujah. Jesus gave him the gift of sight. And that miracle was so astonishing that John takes a few more verses describing the people's response. Number two on your outline is the people's response. And that's the rest of the verses there. See, when Jesus begins to work in a sinner's life, other people are going to notice that. And people are going to respond And that's what's going on here. This formerly blind man was well known to his neighborhood. And now that he has the gift of sight, we see the neighbor's confusion. Letter A would be the neighbor's confusion. Look at verse eight. Verse eight describes that the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? That's not a crazy question, right? If, If... you or I would be, we'd be asking a similar question if we had a coworker that we'd work with for 10, 15 years and they'd always been restricted to a wheelchair and then one day they come to work and they're walking upright just fine. We'd be asking a similar question. Such a noticeable change here in this formerly blind man that they aren't sure that they recognize him. So there's a division between the neighbors. Some of them are saying, yeah, that's him. Some are going, nah, looks like him, but it's not him. So what does the blind man keep saying to the doubters at the end of verse nine? What does he say? I am the man. You didn't know that phrase was in the Bible, but it is. I'm the man. Some of the neighbors can't believe that because nobody goes from being born blind to perfect vision in an instant. And in verse 10, they ask, how were your eyes opened? And that's when we see, finally, the man's clarification. Let her be on your outline, the man's clarification. He answers in verse 11. Look at your Bibles there. The man called Jesus. This is his answer. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, this man is definitely healed, but to reiterate, I don't believe this man is born again just yet. 
But the, wor- the Lord is definitely working in his life. That's clear. He does testify clearly about what's happened to him, what Jesus has done for him. And that ought to be a great encouragement to many of you in our church who are fairly new Christians. Because you don't have to be an expert on Christianity to testify to what the Lord has done and is doing in your life. Now, as you grow in Christ, you'll become more equipped to explain the gospel to other people. But don't ever lose your story, friends. Keep telling your story of how you came to faith in Christ. Your story matters. And this blind man's story of salvation is really just beginning. And we know that because when they ask him in verse 12 where Jesus is, he has no idea. You know why he has no idea? Because this formerly blind man has still never actually seen Jesus with his own eyes. Did you catch that? By verse 12, he has no idea what Jesus looks like, so he's just being honest. But soon, soon he will see Jesus with his own eyes. And he will receive so much more. And we'll see more of his transformation next Sunday. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin and trusted Christ by faith, you don't have to wait until next Sunday. (laughs) In fact, I would encourage you not to. Because what ends up happening in this man's life, I'll give you a heads up if you haven't read it. (laughs) He embraces the gospel. He has faith in Christ. He hears the good news. The good news that someone like me, a sinner, a rebellion against God, that that someone like me deserves death, hell, and the judgment of God. But that God in his mercy and compassion has made it possible for a sinner like me to be forgiven and saved and placed into a right relationship with the Father because of what the Son did by giving himself on the cross and being a sacrifice, not for his sin, but for mine. And if that's you, friend, and you've never trusted Christ by faith, let me just encourage you after the service, We'll be down front here. We'd love to start a conversation with you about that. Just want to mark on your connect card that you'd love to have a conversation about that. We'd love to talk with you. It's the most precious gift that anyone can give. This guy got the gift of sight, but then he received so much more.